foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. That was Emma's Revolution, and I'm Marcy Winograd. Welcome to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations, such as KBOO in Portland and KCSB in Santa Barbara. You can also hear us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Oh, and check us out on our website, codepink.org, where you will find the latest on our campaigns and all of our radio episodes and podcasts. On this Code Pink radio episode, we host a roundtable with Code Pink Shiro's Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, prolific author, and Anne Wright, a member of Code Pink's board of directors, former colonel in the military, and diplomat who resigned from the State Department to protest the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Also, Jody Evans, the other co-founder of Code Pink. During the second half of our program, we will hear from American University professor Peter Kuznick with his review of the movie Oppenheimer. First, this. Medea, you're packing for another trip to Cuba, and we do want to hear all about that, as well as your book tour for the war in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. But first, let's hear from Anne Wright, because Anne, you're in Hawaii. That's your home, Oahu, where you are active not only in Code Pink, but also Veterans for Peace and in demanding the closure of the Red Hill storage facility that has leaked jet fuel into the water supply, contaminating drinking water for nearly 100,000 people in Oahu. We will talk about that. But first, we want to talk about Maui, the devastation, the tragedy that occurred there when wildfires swept through the island and we we saw the intersection between militarism and vulture capitalism. So talk about what happened in Maui and your perspective on this, Anne. Well, it's a it's a real tragedy to see a whole city uh, just obliterated, incinerated, really, uh, from wildfires. And it, as you mentioned, it does bring up the whole issue of what's going on in Hawaii, who owns property, what kind of water rights, property rights there are. And the west side of Maui has a large number of large resorts and large uh, property holdings uh, by people that don't really live in Hawaii. And the the diversion of water uh, from the traditional Kalo uh, marsh areas uh, and the development of areas that have now brought invasive grasses in and Anyway, bottom line was uh, there was nothing really to block uh, a major wildfire from grasses to go on down into the little city, the little town of Lahaina. And 
Uh, they're still trying to sort out why the tsunami sirens weren't weren't activated and why there wasn't really more notification through cell phones, although the cell phone towers apparently got burned fast and the electric lines that probably started the fires were all down. It was just a, a tragic, perfect storm of everything that could go wrong went wrong. And so now with the tremendous uh, donations coming in from all the islands of, of Hawaii going into Maui to the extent that the people in Maui have said, would you please hold what's been donated and we will call forward when we've got space to accept it all. Uh, so that's, you know, the outpouring of goodwill for the, the tragedy and the huge numbers of people that we estimate uh, have died in that right now. They only confirm that they have like 140 bodies and 15 of them have been identified. Uh, but the numbers of missing that are listed on a variety of, of lists from the FBI to the local um, police department and then online listings, a number in the hundreds. And so it's a, it's a terrible tragedy. And the state of Hawaii, the governor has said, all you venture uh, not venture, but your disaster capitalists uh, that are going to try to to uh, make money off of this tragedy, uh, just just stay out of our way because we're not we're not going to have a system where people who have nothing left, everything's burned, are going to sell the the property just to get some money. They're, the federal government has already come in with. Uh, loans through FEMA and the Small Business Association and that for, to protect the people whose whole lives have just been destroyed is, is the main per, main goal, really, of the state of Hawaii and with good cooperation from the federal government. The, now, Anne, I want to ask you about this intersection of uh, disaster capitalism and militarism. You mentioned water had been diverted for development. Is water also being diverted for militarism? And I, I find it ironic because the military has uh, has such a grip on Hawaii, and yet look at what happened in Maui uh, in terms of security. We have very little security, right? Our, our priorities are all wrong in terms of what we're investing in. Well, that's right. And the although West Maui uh, is fortunate, it does not have a, a major military base on it. Uh, in fact, there are only two places on Maui that have military uh, facilities. Uh, one of them is up on Haleakala, uh, the 10,000-foot uh, extinct volcano. Uh, it's a satellite system that's up there. And then there's one of the biggest supercomputers in the world is run by the military on Maui. Uh, in contrast to like Big Island, where Poakaloa, the huge, huge military training area, uh, has wildfires, and many times they don't have enough water there to put out the wildfires that are caused by military uh, war games that are going on. And certainly here on Oahu, we have the five major military bases, uh, some of which uh, will have wildfires starting on them, uh, particularly on the on the west side, the Makua Valley, uh, which by uh, by court action has... Uh, told the military, do not do any more live fire training in that valley because you start so many wildfires. And through citizen activism, uh, we hope to, to get the return of 
of Makua Valley to the people of Hawaii and get the military totally off that base. Yes, and keep the military out of Maui for the most part. And let's talk about Red Hill, and then I want to hear from from Medea uh, about her trip to Cuba. Red Hill Storage Facility, I know you've been very active in trying to shut that down after the leaking of jet fuel into the water supply for, what, about 100,000 residents of Oahu. Can you give us a quick update on that? Well, starting at the end of this week, uh, we'll, we'll begin what's called repacking, which means uh, trying to get the air out of two major pipelines that come down the three miles from the underground massive storage tanks all the way down to uh, the uh, Pearl Harbor, the naval base, uh, so that the air comes out. Then they're going to start uh, moving fuel, the remaining one, uh, 104 million gallons of various kinds of military fuels through those lines and down to above-ground tanks, some of which are at Pearl Harbor, some at Hickam Air Force Base, and then putting a lot of it into fuel tankers that are being brought from the continent over who will then take the, that fuel uh, to places, some of it in Australia. The U.S. military has built a tank farm in Darwin that will hold 60 million gallons of fuel, and the people of Australia are not pleased with that. Uh, they will be taking some of the fuel probably to Singapore, where the U.S. has a big naval base, uh, probably some to Okinawa, to, to Guam, and some may go back to the continent, to San Diego or up at Bremerton. So basically, Washington. They are, they're exporting the danger, the risks. Indeed, yes. Uh, we hate that anybody else has to uh, take this stuff, uh, but we're glad that 100 million gallons of it is now leaving. Uh, most of it is leaving uh, Oahu. All right. So at this point, I just want to remind our listeners, I'm Marcy Winograd, a host of Code Pink radio code pink podcast and my guests today are medea benjamin co-founder of code pink and ann wright on the board of directors you're just you're just listening to ann uh, medea welcome aboard tell us about your trip to cuba and what you're planning uh well i'm leaving for cuba on uh, thursday and we are taking five thousand pounds of powdered milk to a number of the hospitals in the cities of Santa Clara, Cienfuegos, and Santi Espiritu. And we are also taking medicines. And it's unfortunate, but the economic situation is very dire in Cuba these days. And so for the last year and a half, we have been taking powdered milk to hospitals in a number of the different provinces. And so this is a continuation of that effort. So... At the end of the day, we want the embargo lifted. We want Cuba off the state, a sponsor of terrorism list that Trump assigned Cuba to, and, and Biden has not budged on that. Uh, what's the plan? What's the strategy to tackle this? It's very difficult, Marcy, because it really has uh, not a lot to do with Cuba and more to do with the politics in the United States, especially around Southern Florida, uh, the a Cuban-American conservative community, because not all Cuban-Americans want to continue with this blockade. In fact, uh, I'm going to Cuba with the head of Puentes de Amor, Carlos Lasso, who has been organizing Cuban-Americans throughout the country 
to promote uh, the normalization of relations with Cuba as happened under President Obama. Uh, but it's not just the politics of Southern Florida. It's also the fact that Joe Biden has really handed over the policy towards Cuba and a lot of Latin America to Bob Menendez, the Democratic senator from New Jersey, who is awful when it comes to Latin America and particularly bad when it comes to Cuba. So it is very hard to get a change in policy. We have met with people in the State Department and we've met with many people in Congress and others have met with the National Security Council and we're told by uh, people in Congress who have a more um, uh, have an agenda of normalizing relations like uh, Jim McGovern and Barbara Lee that they have met with the White House uh, and um, they keep being told that things are going to change, things are going to change, uh, but they don't. So this policy continues. And in the meantime, we continue to put pressure on both members of Congress to try to stop some terrible bills that are circulating through the House and the Senate now that would actually take away the president's ability to remove Cuba from that state sponsor of terrorism list. So we're trying to have things not become even worse uh, while we are pressuring Biden to lift Cuba, take Cuba off that terrorist list. It should never have been on. This is something that Trump did in his last days in office, and it has no basis in reality at all. Well, thank you so much for going to Cuba, bringing all those supplies, those urgently needed supplies, given the sanctions, the ridiculous sanctions we've imposed on Cuba and the power that one man, Bob Menendez, who who's has his own problems, uh, holds as the chair of the Senate Foreign, Foreign Relations Committee. So moving on, let's talk about Ukraine. It's a frightening situation. I'm reading the headlines. What am I reading? I'm reading that... Uh, we now have lots of troops, NATO troops, in Poland on the border with Belarus, that the president of Belarus is threatening to use short-range nuclear weapons if there is a NATO attack on his country, that U.S. intelligence is saying, hey, uh, this counteroffensive was a failure. Uh, the land bridge that Russia covets from Russia to Crimea is still intact. Uh, and then there are some people, you know, we read reports of people grumbling within the Biden administration that Ukraine doesn't want to suffer more casualties. I, to think to think that we would be encouraging that is is really uh, such an affront to one's sensibilities, to one's heart. So you're traveling the country, Medea. You've got your book, The War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. What are you hearing out there? Uh, what's the mood? CNN, we know, just issued a poll that showed 55% of the U.S. public that was surveyed does not want to continue funding this war, already funded to the tune of about $110 billion. Biden wants $24 billion. Uh, what are you hearing? Well, I'm glad you brought up that opinion poll because certainly that's the sense that I hear around the country as I travel around, uh, that people really want the Biden administration to uh, come up with an off-ramp. You might remember that Biden himself at one point talked about the possibility of nuclear Armageddon. He said it during a fundraiser, actually, and said that Putin needed an off-ramp. Well, I think everybody needs an off-ramp now. Zelensky, Biden, uh, and uh, the uh, sentiment in the United States is moving much 
more rapidly towards not only saying, yes, we want peace talks and we want a, a ceasefire, but is also saying we don't want to send any more money. And that is the opposite of what we're hearing in the mainstream media, that we must continue to fund this war. It's the opposite of what we're hearing from the majority in Congress and certainly from the White House. So the fact that we have 55% of the American people saying no more money, it comes at the exact same time that Biden is asking for another $24 billion. So as you know, Marcy, we have this coalition, Peace in Ukraine, that we encourage people to join, peaceinukraine.org. And we have to get busy to put pressure on members of Congress to not support Biden's new request for more money to keep this war going. That's right. And we have an alert on our website, codepink.org. Check it out. Uh, telling Biden, uh, telling Congress, uh, we don't want you to approve another $24 billion for this war in which there is no military solution. We know that. Uh, now, in terms of the Peace in Ukraine Coalition, I want to put a plug in for our upcoming Global Days of Action. This is September 30th to October 8th. Uh, of course, we want to take action now. And I, I just told you about what we're doing at Code Pink. But we also want to plan ahead. And I know that you're very much involved in this effort. The Global Days of Action is to call for a ceasefire, to call for a halt to weapons. And this emerged from an international summit, which you moderated, Medea, in Vienna, held earlier this summer, in which there were representatives from 32 countries calling for a ceasefire in Ukraine. So uh, what are you planning for the Global Days of Action? Well, we're very excited about it. And there will be actions all over the country and people listening should try to plan an action in their own community. Uh, as you well know, Marcy, it doesn't take a lot of people. It could be a small group standing outside a federal building, going to their farmer's market, um, uh, organizing a teach-in. And in Washington, D.C., we'll be having an event with the uh, Green Party presidential candidate Cornell West, as well as the uh, comedian Lee Camp, uh, myself, the head of the um, the uh, one of the key people at Breakthrough News, uh, Eugene Perrier, who will be speaking at a public event in the evening. But then the next day, we're very excited about an advocacy day that we're asking people to do in D.C. as well as in their local communities jointly putting pressure on their members of Congress. And we have a number of exciting things planned for that advocacy day, uh, might even include some sit-ins in offices, uh, because we want to turn up the heat. You know, Code Pink has had this summer of peace, and I think we need a fall of resistance where we are really doing even more than uh, simply calling our members of Congress we're putting a lot more direct pressure and shaming them. And especially we have to shame those who call themselves progressives in Congress, but yet continue to rubber stamp any uh, amount of money that's being requested from the White House. So this will be our time to do it at the end of September, September 30th until October 8th, and join us on the Advocacy Day, which will be October and I'll be there and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your leadership on that, Medea. And I want to welcome the other co-founder of Code Pink, Jody Evans, to our show. Jody, uh, how are you? Hi, Marcy. How are you? Good oh, to be good. with you. 
<laughs> Good, yeah. So, Jody, tell us about the China is not our enemy campaign. What's what's the latest? Oh, well, the latest is the lies and um, propaganda continue and they're layered and layered. But, you know, what's the latest for me is that, you know, as Code Pink is being attacked by the media, trying to silence us around our campaign to expose the propaganda and hate on China, what I've been learning is the effects of this hate and propaganda on Asian Americans. You know, at the beginning of the campaign, we we saw it and there were like 3,000 attacks. But a recent study shows that in the last 12 months, three in four Chinese Americans have experienced violence or hate. And we're watching people leave the country because they do not feel safe. I mean, just think about that, that this war on China that the U.S. is driving already has casualties and they're in the United States of America. But the other thing I learned, it's also affecting the diaspora, that the propaganda, that the narrative that the U.S. is driving is hurting Asians um, around the world, that that hate is affecting them in Europe, in um, Latin America and in Africa. And so, you know, that we know that the first casualty of war is the truth and the second is human rights. But here we see that this war is already costing those in the United States. And one of the interesting things is young people. I, I mean, I've been talking to young people who are um, Chinese American and it's really politicizing them. They're, they're coming to terms with what does the United States expect? I am an American and I love being an American, but they are attacking the very culture, the very you know sinews of who I am as a human a culture that I love and I'm proud of. And that, you know, this country of 330 um, million thinks it's okay to demean and hate a culture that's 4,000 years old and, you know, has a billion, 400,000 people. What, you know, that is- And here we see the New York Times manufacturing consent for this preparation for war. It's disgraceful, particularly in light of the, the newspaper's record in the run-up to the war in Iraq and manufacturing. Well, well Marcy, I mean, did you see the report a couple of weeks ago out of the Cost of War project at Brown University, where they said that 4.2 million people have died from the U.S. war on terror? That war was driven by lies out of the New York Times, where they sh should have been telling us the truth, where the truth was known, where other journalists did report the truth, the New York Times was driving that war. That's, they have blood on their hands, 4.2 million lives. So yes, a manufacturing consent. And All right. trying to get in the way of the manufacturing of consent for a war on China, because as Bernie Sanders said in The Guardian just yesterday, you know, and what's core to the message of our China is not our enemy campaign is we need to be cooperating with China on climate change. You know, the greatest cost to climate change is wars. A war on China would be devastating to the planet. That's before we get into the question of we're, we're talking about two nuclear powers, which is unthinkable. Anyone who is driving war on China, anyone who is driving war, shame on them in this time in history 
with the needs of the planet, with the needs of the people, that all that money needs to be pivoted back to um, the needs of people, not, well, not this the is, this is what I call this thievery in plain sight. For those who just tuned in, I'm Marcy Winograd with Code Pink Radio, your host. And with me are my sheroes. Uh, you just heard from Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink, Medea Benjamin, another co-founder of Code Pink, and Anne Wright former diplomat and board of directors member of Code Pink. Let's talk about this uh, run up to, well, I don't want to say war with China because that's not what we want. And that's what we are are trying to prevent with our activism. But yet we see right before our eyes, the United States expanding bases, uh, building new bases to surround China. And I'd like to talk about this trilateral quote, security, that wouldn't be my word, security pact between Australia, the UK, and the US. It's called AUKUS. I guess that's Australia, UK, US, AUKUS, uh, which involves supplying the United States in violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which our country signed 50 years ago, is supplying nuclear submarines to Australia and sharing nuclear technology. All of this in an effort to overwhelm China. And tell us about AUKUS. I know you've been you've been deep into the weeds on this. Well, yes, because the the headquarters of the Indo-Pacific Command, the largest U.S. military command that actually covers almost half the world from the west coast of the United States all the way over to India, the headquarters of that is located right here in Honolulu. And plans for the massive naval armadas that the U.S. is sending to uh, to right off the coast of China in what they call the freedom of navigation uh, under the law of the seas, except the U.S. never even signed the law of the seas treaty. Uh, but the, the numbers of military war games that are going on uh, just in Australia, uh, Talisman Sabre just ended, and that was 30,000 ground troops plus aircraft and naval uh, that were uh, uh, doing war games on Australia. Uh, we have uh, right now going on in South Korea, uh, the Ulchi Freedom uh, Annual War Games. Uh, we have a new agreement between South Korea, Japan, and the United States. It was brokered last Friday by President Biden and in uh, Camp David. Uh, we have the continuing uh, delegations of U.S. diplomats, Congress people, military people going into Taiwan to purposely provoke uh, the People's Republic of China, the PRC. Uh, uh, the, and that's when the U.S. signed on 40 years ago to what was called the One China Policy. But the U.S. is filled with doublespeak. You say, okay, One China except Taiwan, which was <laughs> the no exception part of this thing. The U.S. continues to sell all sorts of uh, military weaponry to, to Taiwan, uh, and is uh, being very provo provocative uh, with NATO forces coming in, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, North Atlantic, coming into the Pacific and being a part of all of the naval exercises to include the ships that were with Talisman Sabre. And then this coming year in 2024, we'll have the rim of the Pacific naval exercises, which are the largest ones in the world, which generally have 25,000 people a part of it. In anywhere from 25 to 40 ships, submarines, and all sorts of aircraft. So the Pacific is awash uh, in militaristic things and is only one accident, one incident away 
from a catastrophe for us in the world. That's right. And I thank you, Anne, for giving us basically the cliff notes on AUKUS, the trilateral security pact between Australia, the UK, and the US involving nuclear submarines. Uh, I know, Jody, and we're going to get back to Medea in a minute. I know, Jody, that you were uh, disrupting a hearing on China recently. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that, uh, what we might not have seen on video, uh, any reflections on your role in challenging this preparation for war with China and what people can do who might want to amplify your efforts or, or stand with you? Uh, thanks, Marcy. Well, there is a new committee in Congress. It's called the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so it's already in the name a, a McCarthyist-type committee. It seems hell-bent to drive hate and to hurt China, not cooperate, and to hurt uh, China in the eyes of uh, U.S. You know, listeners to what they're doing there. Code Pink was there to disrupt their very first meeting, that hate on China is not what we need right now. We actually do need cooperation. Um, the committee has been trying, you know, pushing for sanctions, uh, telling basic lies about China, and it's it's driving hate. It was formed to drive hate on China, which therefore um, is a fuel, it's fuel for the, the war they want to have on China. And this is the first time in history a, com a committee like this has existed. And, you know, we at Code Pink and China is not our enemy are trying to expose it for what it's doing, that this is not what a committee in Congress should be doing. Uh, we should be investigating. Instead, um, there was a vote uh, recently in the NDAA, you know, about asking the White House to report what's happening with their engagement in the Ukraine war. And no Democrats voted for that. We need to be, yes, we need to be looking at who's fueling uh, this committee in Congress. Where's the money coming from? We, we saw a report that most of the think tanks that are in the ears of members of Congress are funded by the military industrial complex. So we need to be looking at why are hearts and minds being weaponized in the United States to drive war? And that committee is just another form of it. I agree with you 100%. And I think everybody needs to be cognizant of the fact that McCarthyism is back, as you said, and they're they're going after those who dissent. They're going after them here and they're going after them in Europe as well. Medea, your plans when you get back from Cuba, what are your plans in terms of activism? Well, I'm uh, going back to Europe and going to be uh, coordinating with some of our European allies that are deeply engaged in mobilizing their uh, people to show opposition to the war in Ukraine. Uh, I'll be meeting with a number of them in Brussels in the early part of September. Uh, and we will continue to build up to the days of action in October. I'm excited that there are some openings now in Congress. 
what strikes me as quite extraordinary is that the Republican co-chair of the Ukraine caucus, one of the most uh, vociferous supporters of Ukraine, has recently come out, his name is Andy Harris, and has come out and say, it doesn't look like there's going to be a victory on the ground. Maybe we shouldn't keep supporting this war. And um, that is a major opening. So I think that we have the possibilities to really start turning things around. And I'm excited that when Congress comes back after Labor Day, uh, we'll be able to increase the pressure. Yes, and we need to keep the pressure on during that interim period when Congress is not in session. They will be back at home, your representatives, and they need to hear from you. You know, what do you think about uh, all of this preparation for war with China, a country of 1.4 billion at least people, the world's largest exporter, owner of almost a trillion dollars of U.S. debt? Uh, Congress needs, a, you know, we need some psychotherapy for Congress, I think, because... Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Marcy, uh, that Jody brought up the issue of Bernie Sanders and the op-ed that he had in The Guardian talking about the need to cooperate with China. And yet the same Bernie Sanders is one who says you can't talk to Putin uh, and hasn't joined us in a call for a ceasefire and peace talks. So even folks like Bernie Sanders, the squad, Barbara Lee, our champion against going to war in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, we don't have them with us on this one. And they, it seems, are not hearing enough from us. So I encourage everybody listening, pick up the phone, call not only your member of Congress and your senators, but call those others that you are surprised uh, that they are not calling for an end to this conflict. Yes, and now is a, a perfect time to mention that Code Pink has a phone banking operation uh, where we are calling Congress on a weekly basis to say stop funding this war. Some of you may be listening and thinking, why wouldn't we want to support Ukraine that has been attacked? And the bottom line is it's not supporting Ukraine to send cluster munitions, to send uh, nuclear-capable F-16 fighter jets, to send depleted uranium to Ukraine, to encourage the loss of more lives. How many have died? So many, you know, tens of thousands of both Ukrainians and Russians. When we know there's no military solution, when we know that despite the lies of the press that continues to say this war was unprovoked, we know there were decades of provocations. And not that we excuse the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because we do not at Code Pink. We're an anti-war organization, but we understand that there were NATO provocations and that Russia perceived these ex these expansive efforts, you know, up to their border as an existential threat. So we need to address the security concerns of all stakeholders. At this point, I just want to give you all one, uh, one more opportunity to let people know how they might engage with your campaign. And then we're going to, we're going to say goodbye. All right. So, uh, Anne, any uh, final thoughts on what people might want to know about AUKUS or uh, Maui, Red Hill, anything that you've mentioned? Well, I'll mention something different, Korea. Uh, you know, we just had the national mobilization uh, to end the Korean War, uh, which was in the latter part of July, and, and saying, if we're a peace organization, we stand for peace and not confrontation. And so whether it's with China, whether it's with uh, North Korea, whether it's with Russia, 
we must keep pushing hard for peace and not this confrontation that ultimately will get us into much deeper problems than we are right now. The loss of life in Ukraine and in Russia is unacceptable. The only way to stop it is to have ceasefires working toward peace. Thank you. Thank you. Jody. any last thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Sure. I mean, one of the things I learned in speaking to members of Congress in that committee is that I was told they're not allowed to talk about peace in the halls of Congress. Congress people are not allowed to talk about peace. They said they got buzzsawed. So this summer, we've called for a summer of peace where we're raising up just peace. Like, have we forgotten what peace is? Have we literally let them brainwash us so much that you can't say peace? So our summer of peace is to celebrate peace in every way we can. We've already had, I think, 300 engagements. Um, Join us. Go to codepink.org and sign up for summer peace. Do something to elevate peace, to make peace visible, and send us the photo, and we'll share it. Because this is our... I was going to say, it's like peace has become a radical word. (laughs) Uh, It's uh, so upside down these days. And uh, when I think about this country and what we're doing abroad, what we're doing at home, really, because it, as I mentioned, it's thievery and played in sight, money that is being invested in Raytheon, in General Dynamics, in Boeing, in Lockheed Martin, in Northrop Grumman, in nuclear rearmament, a $1.7 trillion program over the next few decades is money robbed from working people in this country who live paycheck to paycheck, who can't afford the rent, who are homeless, who, who don't have medical insurance or are not covered adequately, who have millions have no access to clean water. 34 million are food insecure. And here we are with a near trillion dollar military budget. All right. I'm getting down from my platform uh, to hand it over to you, Medea, for any last words or thoughts you want to share. Well, to echo what Jody said about peace being a dirty word, as I traveled around this country, I've found that there have been efforts to cancel my events, and some have been successful at universities, bookstores, peace churches, uh, because advocating for peace talks uh, is seen as something that is um, uh, pro-Putin instead of pro-peace. And uh, so we need to build up our movement. Please join Code Pink and also the Peace in Ukraine Coalition. It's wonderful to be able to be working with people like in Veterans for Peace, World Beyond War, and lots of other groups in this coalition. And you can join it as an individual as well as as a member. Uh, Join the once a month calls where we talk about what people are doing And uh, we have some great subcommittees that people can be on. Join with Marcy Winograd in contacting your local media and responding to the terrible articles they put out or join one of the um, the interfaith group to get more faith-based leaders to come out and support the Pope's efforts for peace. So we've got lots of things that people can do. Codepink.org, peaceinukraine.org. Thank you, Medea. Yes, peaceinukraine.org. That's the coalition that Code Pink initiated following uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I co-chair that, as Medea mentioned, with Bert Knorr of DSA International Committee, of the DSA International Committee. With that, I want to thank our sheroes, Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink, and Anne Wright, former diplomat, colonel in the military, and now board member of Code Pink. Great to have you on on Code Pink Radio.
of Veterans for Peace set sail in their boat called the Golden Rule to build awareness about the danger of nuclear weapons and the urgent call for nuclear abolition. While the boat was traveling to far corners of our country, spreading the anti-nuclear message, Veterans for Peace hosted American University professor Peter Kuznick, professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. Peter Kuznick is also author of Beyond the Laboratory, Scientists as Political Activists in 1930s America, also co-author with Akira Kimura of Rethinking the Atomic Bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Here's Professor Kuznick on the Oppenheimer movie, directed by Christopher Nolan, a movie based on J. Robert Oppenheimer's life. He was the physicist who oversaw the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb. Perhaps the film's greatest achievement is that it sparked a very needed discussion of nuclear war and nuclear weapons. We haven't had that discussion in a real public way in this country since the 1980s. We haven't had it since Reykjavik, really. Uh, we had it in 1982 with the march in Central Park. We had it in the debates in the 1980s. We had it in the day after and Threads and Testament and the, those movies that came out. But we haven't had it for more than four decades, or for four decades, and this film has triggered it. Uh, and I give it a lot of credit. Other things have also led to that awareness again. We've got Putin's nuclear saber rattling. We've got the tragic death of my dear friend, Dan Ellsberg, who was in many ways America's conscience when it came to nuclear weapons. We've had it with the 60th anniversary recently of the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which triggered a lot of discussion. We've had it very recently with the 60th anniversary of Jack Kennedy's uh, commencement address at American University, which I think was the most important presidential address of the 20th century. So there's been other things that have contributed, but this movie has sparked more of a discussion than anything else. And Nolan said, when I first started writing Oppenheimer, I remember clearly a conversation I had with one of my teenage sons, where I told him that I was working on what I was working on. And he literally said to me, well, nobody really worries about nuclear weapons anymore. Are people going to be interested in that? And I, there's a lot of truth to that, sadly. It might take my students. They're very concerned about climate change as an existential threat. They're extremely knowledgeable about that. They're very knowledgeable and sensitive to gender issues, to racial issues. But when it comes to nuclear war, unlike the students a couple decades ago, they are not really concerned. And they say, well, we've had this threat, we've lived with this threat for 78 years and it hasn't happened. So they're not gonna, it's not gonna happen now. Well, sadly, they're wrong. Sadly, that reality exists. 
Sadly, there's good reason why the bullying atomic scientist has moved the hands of the doomsday clock to two minutes before midnight in 2017, after we almost went to war with, over Korea, then to 90 seconds before midnight in 2020, and this year to well, 100 seconds before midnight in 2020, and 90 seconds before midnight this year. I would move it a lot closer. The danger over Ukraine, the possibility of war with China over Taiwan, things we can talk about, have really made that danger greater than ever. But what are the film's deficiencies? What do I write about? Back in 2020, Marty Sherwin, Kai Bird, Gar Alpovitz, and I just did a series of international press briefings and webinars and wrote an op-ed together in the LA Times, trying to preempt the discussion about the 75th anniversary of the atomic bombings. Because we knew that the media left to its own devices would portray the atomic bombs as necessary. As, you know, and here's the big myth that I find most objectionable. The idea that the atomic bombs were not only necessary, they were actually moral. Uh, and, and it's come out again. Dennis Overby, the New York Times physics and astronomy reporter, wrote an article about the Oppenheimer movie in the New York Times. And he said, the subsequent bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki ended the war against Japan in 1945. That myth, the fundamental lie at the heart of the American empire, the heart of American exceptionalism, that the atomic bombs were not only necessary, that they were actually moral, because the only alternative was a U.S. invasion, in which, according to Truman in his memoir, a half million Americans would be killed in the invasion, as would millions of Japanese. So the atomic bombs were not only necessary, they were moral. They saved lives. It was good that we did it. Uh, now, that view was not only expressed by Dennis Overby, it's expressed by Obama. When Obama went to Hiroshima in May of 2016, I was brought over there to do commentary by Japan Public Television, NHK. And if you remember Obama's comments there, I had urged Obama to go from the day he got elected. I was glad that he went. The only previous president who went was Jimmy Carter, but that was after he was out of office. So it was right that Obama should go. But what he said there was terrible. He says this opens by saying, on a bright sunny sky in 1945, death fell from the skies. Well, death didn't fall from the skies. The United States dropped an atomic bomb, and then three days later dropped another atomic bomb. But when he goes on to say the crucial lie, he says, World War II reached its brutal end in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nonsense. But we get that Susan Rice, former National Security Advisor, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in 2019. And she says, following D-Day, my father was sent to the West Coast to prepare for deployment to the Pacific Theater. He was spared combat by President Harry Truman's decision to drop atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, provoking the Japanese surrender. We get that in Mike Wallace's award-winning book in 2020. We get that over and over again. 
this lie that the atomic bombs ended the war. Well, actually, you know, the, there, are, there is some truth, uh, not to that. But if you go to the U.S. Navy Museum in Washington, D.C., the official museum, they say now, uh, the vast destruction wreaked by the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the loss of 135,000 people made little impact on the Japanese military. However, the Soviet invasion of Manchuria changed their minds. We know this. We know this from the Strategic Bombing Survey. We know this from the War Department report. We know that seven of America's eight five-star admirals and generals in 1945 are on record saying the atomic bombs were either, either militarily unnecessary, morally reprehensible, or both. We know that Admiral Leahy, who chaired the meetings of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and was Truman's personal chief of staff, said that the atomic bombings of a thoroughly defeated Japan put us on the moral level of the barbarians of the Dark Ages. He said we went on to kill as many women and children as we could, which is what we wanted to do all along. We know that Eisenhower was opposed to it. MacArthur, who wanted to use atomic bombs in Korea, MacArthur says we could have ended the war in May if we had told the Japanese they could keep the emperor. We knew that the Soviet invasion, the United States had been urging Stalin to come into the Pacific War since the day after Pearl Harbor. But Stalin was fighting the Germans, right? Most Americans don't know, but you guys probably do, that throughout most of the war, World War II, the Soviets were fighting over 200 German divisions, while the U.S. and the British were fighting 10 between us. And there's a reason why the Soviets lost 27 million. There's a reason why Churchill said the Red Army tore the guts out of the Nazi war machine. But there's also a reason why most Americans believe that the U.S. won the war in Europe, not the Soviets. And so, uh, but, but at Yalta in February, Stalin agreed to come into the Pacific War three months after the end of the war in Europe, which means uh, August 8th or August 9th exactly when the Soviets did come in. And American intelligence started saying back in April, the Joint Intelligence Committee, the Joint Chief of Staff, that the Soviet entry into the war will convince all Japanese that, feudal, that continued resistance is futile. Said on several occasions that the Soviet entry will end the war. We knew that. Intelligence knew that. The military knew that. Truman knew that. Truman goes to Potsdam, has lunch with Stalin on July 17th. He goes back and writes in his diary, Stalin will be in the Jap war by August 15th. Finny Japs when that occurs. He writes home to his wife, Bess, the next day. The Russians are coming in. We'll end the war a year sooner now. Think of all the kids who won't be killed. The, Truman also knew that the other way to speed up Japanese surrender was to change the surrender terms let the Japanese know they could keep the emperor, who they considered to be a divine being. Truman refers to the, says of the intercepted July 18th telegram, calls it the, the telegram from the Jap emperor asking for peace. The question for historians is not whether we had to use the bomb to avoid an invasion. There was no chance, as Eisenhower says, we were going to have to invade. The question was why we used it. And who was the real target? 
And that's what the film doesn't go into. In fact, uh, as the, the Kremlin interpreted, the Soviets knew better than anybody how desperate the Japanese were to surrender. Because in mid-May, the Japanese war cabinet decided that their best chance for getting better surrender terms was to try to get the Soviets to intervene on their behalf to get them better surrender terms. So in early June, uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Hirota meets with the Soviet ambassador in Tokyo, Malik, on several occasions. Malik writes back to the Kremlin, the Japanese are desperate to surrender. Stalin knew this better than anybody, in addition to the spies that he had in the Manhattan Project. So he knew what was going on. And when the U.S. dropped the atomic bombs, the Soviet leaders interpreted it as if they were the target, not Japan. And this was a very big factor in speeding up and catalyzing the Cold War, as the Soviets knew that they were engaged in a, in a struggle. But the scientists also knew that. And in fact, the Frank Committee at MetLab at Met in Chicago issued a report in June saying that even if we have the bomb, we shouldn't use it because it's going to lead to an uncontrollable arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union that could lead to mutual destruction. So and the spokesperson for the movie who says that is Leo Zillard. Now, the, this is a movie that spends 45 minutes building up to and showing the Trinity test in Almogordo. It spends 45 seconds discussing the scientists' opposition to using the bomb. And in fact, it has Oppenheimer refuting them and saying, what we have to do is not pass this petition around. And he, he urges them not to sign the petition, and he blocks his circulation. But he also says that what we have to do is use the bomb to end the war. That's the lie that the, that the movie develops. Peter Kuznick, professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. Earlier, we heard from the co-founders of Code Pink, Medea Benjamin and Jody Evans, as well as former diplomat and Code Pink board member Anne Wright. I'm Marcy Winograd, and I want to thank you for listening to us on Code Pink Radio. Peace. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link